Hey folks, welcome to another edition of the Corner Store Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Koval. We have in the building the squad, uh, you know, back at it again, uh, reassembled post holiday break. Uh, we have Max the Snack Door, who's eating a big snack, a healthy snack, maybe lunch, really. He's eating uh, in the corner store. Mercedes Zapata, the photographer, social media maven, is in the corner store. DJ Cashera is a real-life superhero, saved uh, an old lady who needed to jumpstart her car. Um, and also the homie Mariah Neuroth is in the building, all in the corner store today. And we have a really special episode because we have a man who has been putting on for creating the culture of hip hop in Chicago, uh, in in company in, in choir with, uh, I would say a you know first generation crew of practitioners in the city, someone who also started the uh, well known and very important uh, Shy Rock Nation, a documenter, an all around b boy, uh, DJ, MC, graffiti writer. We have Daryl Artistic Roberts in the corner store, sir. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Excited to talk with you, man. Yes. It's been a long time coming. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, before we get started, a few things. One, uh, we're going to get your socials at the end, but if you could give out your social media so people who are listening up top, they could follow along and be in tune with all that you're doing. Uh, where's a good place to get you? Uh, well, I'm on Facebook under my name, uh, Daryl M. Roberts Artistic. And then uh, on uh, Instagram, I'm also up under... Uh, Daryl M. Roberts or artistic, uh, Shy Rock Nation. Great. Um, and also, you know, Max uh, always secures uh, snacks for our guests in the corner store. Today is no different. Max got for you a uh, good sized Gatorade Frost Crisp and Cool Thirst Quencher. Okay. Uh, so that's for Thank you. you. All right. Thank and then in addition, uh, and, you know, feel free to enjoy that. Now, also, in addition, some cheese flavored okie doke popcorn <laughs> it's only a buck 49 nice. I uh, yeah i guess okie doke was bought Thank you. but like they were acquired by jays i didn't realize that i don't know when that uh you know jays has a kind of monopoly out here i don't know they're just buying up these smaller regional uh you know popcorn company i don't know what they're doing anyway the point is welcome man yes uh thank you for being here we have a, a giant history to talk about yes um, but you've been doing it all kind of since the beginning yep pretty much <laughs> so uh so let's let's start there i mean you you come from where do you come from well i'm uh born and raised here in chicago um i come from the southeast side um grew up on 101st right off of state street and uh man you know um kind of got introduced to it uh watching shows like soul train yes okay you know during the 70s yeah and because uh, they had so how early do you remember because I mean was there there was b-boying at some point on Soul Train but there were the earlier iterations of various dances that became kind of known as b-boying right probably out of like funk I'm, th- I'm thinking like funk dance and ticking maybe in the right. 70s from the west coast or right what else like what was right. were you were you into dance already or you just saw that and that inspired you well to that's what got me into dance yeah I mean Soul Train was definitely you know uh, epic when it came to that, you know, dance, fashion, music, um, all of that up and above. But definitely uh, the early days were, like like you say, locking and popping, you know, on Soul Train. But it really connected right into the B-Boy era, you know. And, uh, I mean, you know, in the early 80s when, uh, when videos started to come out, you know, uh, Friday Night Jams. Well, no, Friday Night Videos and some of the other like MTV, you know, some of the networks that began to start showcasing it. Um, 
it started to flood in, you know, it was like a floodgate, you know, pouring in. And then we had a local radio station that was a big help, too, in Chicago called WHPK. Yeah. Only, what, yeah. The only station that would fuck with rap. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. There yeah. you go. Yeah, well, shout out JP Chill. <laughs> right. Who, who are some of the other early? Because that was really kind of I remember that as being yeah. one of the lone places you could listen to hip hop. Right. Um, who who was it? JP or were there others who were putting on? Well, um. I actually just talked to the guy. His name is uh, K.L., Kevin Whis- Whiskner. I think that's how he pronounced his last name. But he was originally from New York, but he moved to Chicago in 1974. And he went to the University of Chicago for school and got, you know, got connected right into radio, you know. And, uh, you know, at the time thought it was a good thing to start a rap show because there were no rap shows in Chicago at that point. So he said he had records and he started collecting records and he had enough to do a whole show. And that started in 1984, first rap show in wow, Chicago. Right. <laughs> and so this is significant because I think it's hard to imagine in this moment that before then there was no hip hop on the radio. Yeah. Right. There was there was nothing. It was a desert, more yeah. or less. They yes. would play some crossover. Yes. You know what we might consider now as pop hits. Right. But this was because now you go to your phone, you got all the hip hop at your yeah. fingertips. Yeah. So Definitely. this was this was a um, did you you already were in love with the music by then? Did you know yeah. it yeah. as hip hop? Be- like, how did you? Because, you know, like, you know, obviously during the 70s, disco was popular. So, you know, uh, you know, uh, soul, jazz, um and you who's know, playing this music in your house? Is it, the, your folks have these records? Well, or? my family did play music. My uncle, my aunt, my mom, you know, they loved uh, Motown, the people from Motown. I mean, you know, uh, I remember seeing records in our house, little 45s, you know, uh, record labels like, of course, Motown, Stax Records, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, you know, and these All come, Midwest shit, too. Yeah, yeah, let's yeah. Be, let's, definitely, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, I mean, you know, and so... You know, like I say, with TV and all of that going on and hearing the music, it just kind of like captures you, you know. And, you know, like my family wasn't really a big musical type of family, but we love to hear, listen to music, you know. And so, you know, when I kind of started listening to it more and more, I'm like, wow, you know, this is certain type of music. James Brown was big, too. You know, James Brown was just instrumental in hip-hop in general and just people in the world you yes, know it's yeah. just like you know so you know but when you when you know i mean for me personally i definitely remember the early 80s because that's when you know 1979 the sugar hill gang came out with rapper's delight yes and at the time do you remember this record yes coming out i do yeah i do and at the time we it, and it was being played everywhere you know, and, I, you know, of course, none of us really, at least I didn't understand what this was or where it was going, but it was definitely something new and different. You heard people rhyming over a beat and everybody was playing this record, yeah. you know, and so Curtis Blow came out, you know, same year, you know. And Christmas how old are rap- you about? At this? I'm 1979. I'm uh, eight years old. OK, so you're <laughs> a young kid. What are you thinking when you're beginning to hear this new chat? chant over you know essentially a disco beat at that time yeah 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 yeah. you know it you know when you're young you hear stuff but you don't necessarily understand the elements of what you're hearing of course but you know you 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 can feel something that's different yeah you know it's like okay you know i'm digging this and then the more you hear it you kind of get conditioned to wow you know you start to remember it a little bit yeah 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 i mean i think it's one of the most you know rapper's delight uh is probably one of the most memorized songs 
throughout the history of hip hop. Mm. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, so so that it just continued to, you know, and then Michael Jackson was a big, you know, early 80s, you know, 83, 84, um, because of what he was doing, you know, and even though he wasn't necessarily hip hop, but as a pop artist, you know, and the, and the influence that he got from the streets through hip hop. Please let let them know because I mean I think not enough people have those notes. Yes, right. That like Michael Jackson is also learning from like some of the rock steady crew, right? In terms of how to moonwalk and yes. things like this. Uh, in my research, uh, because I'm actually going to have a segment in my book about it. Uh, so Michael Jackson worked with at least a, a dozen different street uh, dancers, perhaps even more, at one point in time to get trained to learn how to do some of the moves that he was doing. Right. You know, in fact, you know, when he did the Motown 25, uh, where he did what actually was originally called the backslide, you know, when he did that move, a lot of people thought he invented it but because he did it so well. But, you know, he was trained by the street, the street dancers. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very significant. So so you are. So at what point do you start to want to because dance is the first thing for you? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, You used to be in a myriad of B-boy crews. Mm -hmm. How early were you putting together a crew? Uh, Well, I started dancing at 82. Uh, I had a friend named Brian who came. He actually is from Chicago, but he went to California and then he came back. And by the time he came back, he was, you know, one of the top poppers in our neighborhood. Right. So he was taking a West Coast style of y- dance yes. and bringing it to the Midwest. Yes. Significant. Yes. Yeah. And so he, 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 you know, one day, you know, we was out down the street in front of the houses on our block. And one of the neighbors said, hey, Brian, go ahead and do a, go ahead and do that popping stuff. And he threw this wave from one arm to the next. And it didn't look like he had a bone in his body. You know, and I was just totally shocked. I was like, wow, do that again. Do that again. I mean, you know, like, what the heck? And, you know, he did it and he he just started, he, you know, doing robot and, you know, just just fascinating. And at that point, we started a crew. Yeah. You know, and we called ourselves the Egyptian Breakers. Right. <laughs> yes. Okay. Now, I read, I read about this in Lior's piece. Uh, shout out Lior Galil, who yes. wrote a, a great piece about you and, um, you know, for the reader just a few months back. Yes. Uh, yeah, I remember reading that you, why did you come up with that name? You know, we was trying to be, you know, it wasn't like we had ever been to Egypt or anything like right. that, but we were trying to be different. And I think we had a tutting style, you know, because, uh, you know, uh, you know, when you do the tut, it kind of refers to Egypt. Absolutely. And so yeah. for some reason, we just decided to call ourselves the Egyptian breakers and we just stuck with it. <laughs> no, that's dope. And you had, you went by a different name at that time, too. Uh, back then, I, w- I called myself Awesome D. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah, good, good. Right, because you kept the Daryl, you kept the D. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. I love it. All right, so you guys became, what did that mean to become a crew in <laughs> Oh, man, it, it, it was just, it, you, you know, I mean, it was just a given. I mean, because crews started popping up all over the, all. I mean, you know, movies like Flashdance came out, uh, uh, B Street came out in 84. In, in fact, 84 was pivotal because B Street, Breaking 1 and Breaking 2, Came all out in eighty four. Breaking two came out in eighty four. Yes, I didn't know that. Yeah, okay. wow. So those and, they were and like, that was the let's fir- build this franchise. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was just like this is Hollywood now. It's like you know everybody right. and and dancing was on every street corner throughout every community. We used to come downtown a lot and dance on Michigan Avenue and uh, Rush Street. Yes. You know, because it would always be a lot tons of people crowding around when we start dancing and you know give us money and just be fascinated by the dance because it was new to the world. Yeah. You know. Wow. Okay. So yeah. So 
were there a lot of other you knew a lot of other young people doing you know did you call it breaking yeah well you know we we originally called it uh breaking also b-boying yes. you know it originated from new york but here in chicago we definitely called it breaking i heard one time maybe you could clarify this mm-hmm. uh there's a lot of mystery about you know who did what when and mm-hmm. you know the best conversations i've heard is when people you know it's an ecology and you can't it's really hard to pinpoint this particular moment but i've heard the case be made that chicago roller rinks were some of the pioneering places for footwork on the ground and that eventually gravitated towards some new york style of dance that became known as b-boying yes and those those roller rink styles were innovated in the 60s here Mm -hmm. now i don't know if that's myth or my own misunderstanding of, of a lineage but is that is there any well from what i've kind of gathered through my research and just my experience is chicago definitely had uh you know a stirring pot at roller rinks um because not only could you skate but you could dance right so i mean obviously stepping started here in chicago most people would agree and so uh but you know in the 70s when you had the locking and the popping coming up and and, and again soul train was instrumental for a lot of us because we tuned into that to see what they were doing and how they were doing it, which encouraged all of us to go practice and, and, and you know, increase our skills. So, uh, you know, I could definitely I can see that because, you know, we used to go skating and it was like twofold. You know, we go skate and we dance, right. you know, and also with Chicago being well known for the, the development of house music and just the house culture, it was like two forces it kind of was against each other, but at the same time, growing at the same time. Yeah, because at the time you're starting a b-boy crew, house is also beginning to take a very strong hold amongst young people in the city. Were you a part of that community as well? You, I, I feel like you had to be. Well, I, I liked it, house music, but I was I wouldn't class myself as a house head. Right. You know, yeah. uh, I knew a lot of people that loved it, but I mean, I liked the music, but I just you know, hip hop drew me in more. Yes. You know, right. and you know, and again. They were two composing. They were two uh, uh, opposing forces because house people did what they did and hip hoppers did what we did. So, you know, and a lot of times it was difficult for us to even enjoy when we went out to an event. Like a BPM. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, because, you know, you, you know, it's different. It's, it's a little difficult to dance to a house track versus a rap track, you know. So but it was interesting because, you know, obviously there were tons of house DJs rocking in their basement or in their garage and even in the clubs and and they paved the way to to make their history you know and you know i think one of the reasons why chicago hasn't come out so to speak on a on a large scale quicker on the map like other cities is because of the competitiveness that we had with house music because i mean you know the house labels and just all the djs were doing what they were doing and it kind of pushed hip-hop in chicago back so to speak Whereas New York didn't have that, you know what I'm saying? They didn't, you know, they was they had a full fledged force to develop, and and California as well, right? That's, <laughs> in, that's interesting, yeah. Because house for a very long time, and and I think in the hearts and minds of a lot of people, still is the preeminent electro music form mm-hmm. of that time. I mean, mm-hmm. hip hop has become pop culture, mm-hmm. but in Chicago maybe for a long time and again maybe even now house has been more pervasive yes um and especially yes. in the era in the 80s yes. in which you're speaking yes. yeah definitely like you know uh when the hot mix five came out on yeah. wbmx and we're talking 81 82 you know i mean i and this was like i remember listening to this music 
and like you say, electro uh, uh, music and, and then the tracks that was coupled with it from the house music. And I was just like, wow, you know, OK, but then they would mix rap and house together yeah well and then hip house right in chicago for that but also really interesting and i think brilliant time i mean yes i I was a fan of hip house because i loved both musics yes and that was a marriage that i was really interested in yeah you know as a as a as a kid and still am yeah so so, all right so you start you start the crew um egyptian breakers uh you start to battle other crews that 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 was a part of it i mean you you and that was one of the reasons why we developed a crew because it was it got to the point where it was crews coming up all over the place and we kept practicing trying to get good and it was all about competing you know hip hop is very competitive so you see one guy doing a move and you like and then if he throws something to you and he call you out you're not going to just stand there and let him tear you up you know so it's like oh we okay what what's up you know so there goes the battle you know and the the good thing about it is it was developed to keep us from doing keep us from fighting you know if you do the history on new york hip-hop i mean they came from the gang culture to the creative culture you know and the whole idea when bambada and all of them guys in new york got together to do parties it was just like let's stop the fighting and the, and the hurting of one another and let's try to be competitively doing something creative yeah you but know? the same str- i mean that's what i think is so brilliant about hip-hop is that and I, i've heard you know we had uh, crazy legs on the show a few uh, months back or a few weeks back and um he was talking about how he didn't want to romanticize the origins mm-hmm. and certainly the crew what you know zulu nation was an alternative to mm-hmm. gang culture but also was rooted in gang culture yes. obviously and yes. I, I think the brilliant brilliance in terms of the structure and the flip in in hip-hop organizing is that the crew is really reflective of a street organization that Mm -hmm. is representing a kind of um necessary fill-in family circle Mm -hmm. and the crew is meant to kind of foster that kind of brotherhood and sisterhood and camaraderie amongst a generation of young creative people right right and i think and again that's the beauty behind hip-hop in my opinion because it opens you up to help you express yourself freely and, you know, I've never seen any other culture like it. I mean, I mean, with all of what it it, it has nested in it, it, it continues to behoove me. You know, I mean, it's just like, I mean, breakdancing or breaking, you know, the media actually started terming it breakdancing because they felt like, oh, they're, break, they're breaking. It's like they're going to hurt themselves. You know, so <laughs> right. they, you know, they caught wind to the media and they termed it breakdancing. But I have yet to see a dance that could that is better. You know, I mean, it, I likened it a lot to gymnastics, but even, you know, with gymnastics, they they use a lot of apparatuses, you know, to kind of help them with what their, their their ability to do what they do, even though they still are great. Yeah. But with breaking, you you don't have nothing but you on the floor. Well, it's a combination of <laughs> so many different elements, gymnastics yeah. included, but yeah. it's also ballet. It's Capoeira. It's yes. all sorts of, uh, you know, the local dances influenced, you know, from that region, you could see in a cipher depending on where you're on the uh, when you where you are in the country right i think b-boy's coming to the olympics in 2020 yes that's official right yes which is significant and yeah yeah matter of fact they already did the youth olympics last year for the first time and uh you know uh they had a a young person i forget what countries they were from but uh one a male person a young person for the male won the gold medal and then another female person won for the for the women oh wow so i mean so so they tried it for the youth and now they're going to go to the adult whenever that whenever that's going to showcase i believe uh like you say you know 2020 i think 2023 or 2024 wow fly um do you well yeah 
we could have a different conversation about that. But so I, I but I'm curious to, just because I want to get to I want to get to um, Shyrock Nation. Okay, uh, tell us what that is. Well, Shyrock Nation is. It's a street organization that started on the streets of southeast side of Chicago. And again, we were engulfed in all the elements. Um, you know, we were rapping, we were breakdancing, we were doing graffiti, we were DJing, all of us just 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 embracing the culture. Um, but we definitely was influenced by the Zulu Nation because we studied and watched them and what they were doing. And we liked the concept. But at the same time, we realized that we wanted our own identity. And a lot of us at the time, we were claiming Zulu, but none of us were official members. You know, uh, they are, there are some members here in Chicago. Yeah, that, shout out Cassius D. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. But for the most part, 95% of the people in Chicago was not Zulu. But if you look at a lot of the early 80s pictures, mid 80s, you would see a lot of people in the picture doing this. And again, you know, as we got older, we began to realize, well, we're repping something that we're really not officially a part of. So the concept came to where we needed to, we wanted to create something of, of our own. And the gentleman, uh, Cool Rock Steady, before he died, he uh, was kind of like, you know, trying to get us to submit, so to speak, to his leadership. Because at the time he was claiming that he was the chapter representative for Chicago, for the Zulu Nation. And, you know, he was kind of like insinuating that we need to bow down to him because, you know, he's... He's a, he's the king or the the representative for Chicago, and that's when we realize you know we need to create our something of our own. <laughs> and, and, and so so I and I, I remember Shyrock uh, Nation because you guys put on events, parties, gatherings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know when you when you started it, you're you're a young guy who's then seeking to build unity amongst all these other groups in Chicago. That is a pretty significant, but also, you know, we're talking on the day Fred Hampton was murdered. And so that tradition of young people organizing other young people is, is something that's inherent in, in Chicago cultural practice too. What made you want to unify or bring people together in that way? Well, actually it's a collective though. So I'm not actually the founder because it's a collective of, so in other words, we all came from different crews from different parts of the city. Right? So, from the remnant of us that was left, there were three crews. Uh, and these two of the crews came from the 93rd Street area. And then one of the crews came from uh, the south suburbs, Harvey. What and, year What years are we? Uh, we're talking like 1985. Okay. Um, and you say remnants because B-Boying also kind of, it, it, it spiked in people's imagination and in the public sphere. And then it, it, yeah, it you did. know, kind of dipped it down it again. did it, yeah. yeah i would definitely say by 1985 it, it had almost took a full nosedive right and only for the people that really loved it and understood what this was coming to be continued to stay but yes. some people they left and you know went back to game banging or some people went into the house arena you know when whatever they went whatever way they wanted to go but uh you know i definitely think that you know you know to me, it, it was it was it was so it was like a bear hug for me. And I was just like this right here. Yeah, I've never seen anything like it. And same year in 1985, I got into graffiti. So, you know, I, I was like, wow, this thing here, all of this works together. You know, this is a you know, and at the time we were beginning to put the pieces together to see that this is actually a culture. You know, it's not just something that you uh, you do as a hobby, you know, even though it started off as a hobby for most of us. But. I mean, it became it became a full time career for a lot of us. A lot of people even thought rap music wasn't even going to last. They was like, "Oh, that's that's not even real music. That's just you know, blah blah blah." And that's not a real dance. You know, you can't compete 
with trained dancers on a on on a stage, you know, and all of that. So they kind of downed hip hop, you know, full circle. And but every year it continued to grow and develop. So I with the Shot Rock Nation, though, with the individuals that came together of about 20 different individuals, they came together and we decided, you know, to put this 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 brand, so to speak, Shy Rock, which is short. Shy is short for Chicago. R-O-C-K is respect our creative kind. So and we stuck with that. And, you know, ever, you know, ever since. And so, you know, I joined the organization in 1987. So they 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 were already kind of in full swing by the time I came along. And when I came in, my my I made a promise to myself that I was going to represent the organization full force for hip hop because I clearly seen what they were doing. And I'm just like this. No, no, no needed explanation because, you know, it's definitely an offshoot of New York. But at the same time, we're, we were we were branding ourselves to develop our own identity here in Chicago. How were you brought into graffiti? Because I know that that process is, you know, a lot about mentorship and learning yes. from people around you. So who yes. are some of the folks that brought you into graffiti? And I, I want to talk about how that influenced uh, an idea. Because I think through graffiti writers is how I came to know mm-hmm. uh, Shy Rock Nation. Okay. okay. Um, but yeah, how did who who kind of brought you into that world? So. After breaking, start taking its no di- nose dive around 1985, which again was the same year that I got into graffiti. I entered high school. Um, Where'd you there, go? I went to Dunbar uh, Vocational High School, and there was a crew there called IAC. It stood for Insane Artist Crew, and these guys were, you know, they were. Yeah, I mean, they were the epitome of graffiti, you know. And you know, and I would see them, but they were a little older than me. And, you know, so they were kind of like my first influence, but we had neighborhood uh, guys. And then at the same time, WHBK was instrumental to introducing and bringing us together because every week on WHBK, people would be on there doing requests and shout outs and all of that. And we would hear these names and then they would tell us when a party was coming or whatever. And we would go to these parties and that's how we would meet physically or they would have meetings or what they call city writer, citywide writers meetings. And at that place, we would we, wherever we had it at, we would just meet tons and tons of other artists. Yeah. So it would, that influence. Where was, were some of those? Because I, I remember hearing I, I was not a writer, but I, I knew a lot of writers. I remember hearing about meetings that took place on the steps of the uh, um, not the field museum, the science and industry museum. Yes. And, yes. Yeah. We actually uh, you know what? It's interesting because uh, so we had places like the wall, the Hall of Fame, which is right off of 22nd and Cermak yeah. over in Chinatown. Yeah. We had a, a which is not exi- has been paved or I guess developed on. Yes, right. Yes, yeah. they've actually built up residential uh, buildings over there now, so yeah. it's definitely different from what it was in the eighties. But we had a spot on ninety third and Kimbart uh, in the area where Shyrock was born called the Wall of Sin, and that was an outdoor ga- abandoned factory that we used to paint in, and then we would have meetings there. But the Museum of Science and Industry is very key to Chicago hip hop history because. We decided one day, and we're talking like 88, 89, that we wanted to have a meeting citywide again, uh, but not just for the graffiti writers, just hip-hop in general. And uh, we met at the Museum of Science and Industry, and we started trying to have meetings inside the museum as young kids, as young teenagers. And, it's, and, you know, the, and the meetings was growing and getting bigger and bigger, and it, and it started creating a problem because – the security w- was like, you know, you guys you can't be in here dancing and rapping and doing what we were doing. 
So what a missed opportunity <laughs> right, for, for the Science and Industry Museum. I, I wonder if there's a way to rectify that and maybe bring that back because they, yeah, because they broke it up, right? Yeah, or, they, they got to the point to where we literally was kicked out of the museum. Right. Yeah. And then we, we started having the meetings right out it out outside on the door in the you know the you know like the parking the steps, lot area yeah, on the steps. Yeah, yeah. And then they just told us, you know, because we were just distracting and disturbing, I guess, to the people that was coming to the museum. So they say you have to get off the property. You know, and then we went we went from that point we went across the street to this little shelter. And that became our meeting spot, and we had began to meet there for years, it, and we named it the Terra Dome. Public Enemy had just came out in 1990 with Welcome to the Terra Dome. And so this is in Hyde Park. Yes. Now, what I know about the point in Hyde Park in mm-hmm. the 90s is it was one of the spaces where b-boying was also kept alive, because mm-hmm. there were practice sessions. I don't know what crew was holding them, but there were practice sessions at the point where in my understanding, you know, in, in some of what I was privy to, certainly B-Boying, Southside, yes. B-Boying stayed alive yes. in that space. Yes, yeah. I which mean, is very close to where yeah. the Terra Dome, I imagine, yeah. must, must yeah. have been. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, there were, diff- there were definitely pockets of places that nurtured uh, graffiti, uh, uh, MCing, uh, DJing, and, and uh, uh, rap. But, you know, uh, but you do ha- you, you had to be connected to where these places and spots were at, you know, um, because if not, you, you, you wouldn't even think it existed because after like breaking that on the mainstream, it was still going on in, in the underground. So you still kind of had to know where to go to, to see it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. You needed, you, I mean, I was, you needed to know somebody to know. Yeah. You yeah. know, you needed to get a flyer from somewhere. Yes. You needed to be out in the world and have like a face to face interaction so you could get the next thing. Yeah. Cause there were not, I mean, until I, I, the first regular public space I remember for that I went to anyway, that was regular was, mm-hmm. was Jesse De La Pena's yes. Blue Groove Lounge. Yes. Um, and I, I remember the B-Side Cafe, on, okay. I think it was, it was on Belmont. They had some sort of regular night for a little while. And there were, of course, there were all ages club like Medusa, but they weren't playing breaks right. or hip hop music right. necessarily. Right. Um, but yeah, it was, it was still so far from being pop culture yes that you had to i I, there was a point i'm sure i i I say like where you could look at somebody in the you could look at somebody on the train and know whether or not they were into hip-hop yeah the way they moved by the way they dressed and that was how i met people you know because i would just go up to them i'd be like you know because it was obvious and it was still so few of us it felt like right that i could ask somebody like are you into hip-hop yeah or are you a writer yeah. Because I could tell, like, if they had paint on their clothes, yeah. I'm like, you're a writer. Like, yeah. Yeah. where should I go look at work, basically? Yeah. You know, uh, in the 80s, we um, we used to do what they call getting up. So whether it was with a marker or a spray paint can or shoe dye. So the actual shoe dye that you would use to dye your shoes was a very popular tool amongst graffiti writers. And they would take that bottle of Griffin shoe dye and put it in their back pocket. And a lot of times, you know, it stained anything that it touched. So you would have like black stains on your back pocket, you know, and that was an identifying mark as to he must be a graffiti writer. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's really good. So you, 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 and then you, you rapped at, at you rapped too. Yes. Right. Yes. When did that come into the book? So, so in 1985, I started doing, I started rhyming and I started doing graffiti all at the same time because, again, I went to high school and it was around the time Run DMC was very popular. 
they will plan their music on Yo, WHBK all oh my the God. time. They, but so, and you're, you're wearing the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the Kango. The, uh, uh, um, it's a nod, because Run DMC wore black versions of those. Yes. It also reminds me, of course, of LL, but yeah. the, uh, yeah. the, the um, bell-shaped Kango yes. uh, in gray, looking like a very, yeah, with the jean jacket <laughs> yeah. on, on top. Run DMC was really, was really it, right? Yeah, yeah, they were pivotal. I mean, I mean, and when we first started rhyming, I was kind of patterning my style of rap off of them because they were they they were like they were molding and breaking breaking barriers in terms of what they were doing when it came to rap and that they were so iconic oh my god you know they they their image that they you know i mean they made the song my adidas and i mean you know so you know so when we were hearing that music 85 they came out with king of rock 86 they came out with raising hell and they were their music was just constantly being played yes. you know and and i'm talking about local radio you know but 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 then it started getting mainstream as well and because well, the raising hell had that aerosmith crossover yeah joint yeah, too. yeah yeah so you know so so it was just like okay you know a lot of people because of hbk that was our biggest influence we felt that it's a lot of kids doing it let's try it and we had a dude on our block named ronald who actually had some equipment and so we actually did some recordings that i still have in my possession wow. he you know he and he actually could play live instruments too and we would go into his house and do recording sessions you know we didn't have money to you know to yeah, pay for studio, studio time yeah, sure. but because we were right on the block and he had the equipment and we were developing you know we kind of partnered together and you know you know we started you know, laying down stuff and recording it and you know so we we, we made it a demo tape we took it to WHBK because WHBK was known for playing local talent artists. Yeah. You know, and, uh, we would, we would take it, we took our tape down there and JP chill was at the time was like, yeah, we'll get it on. And next thing I know, one day we just listened to HBK and our song comes on the radio, what? you know, and we just went nuts. <laughs> I'm sure you must have. That's incredible. Like dream come true. Right. That's, wow. Yeah, so you know, so it was you know, and we were in Chicago. What was the track? What was the track? Uh, we had made a song called uh, "Let It Rock." Okay, so you know, and it was nicely done, you know, with the production, and we all had written our own little rhyme, and our crew it was seven of us. Wow, you know, but uh, you know, we were, we were break breakers and rappers, and a couple of us were graffiti artists. What was the name of the crew? Uh, we, crew? So we had so Egyptian Breakers was our breaking name. The Curfew Crew was our our rap name. That's right. <laughs> curfew crew or curfew, curfew boys? Uh, well, yeah, we originally called ourselves the Curfew Boys. Okay, and then it became and, the crew. Yes. Oh, I, 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 I still like that name, yeah, actually. And, and we got that because we was always out past curfew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, did you, okay, so in this whole mix, are your parents like, what the fuck's going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. My mom, you know, felt like this was a rebellion, you know, like I had a rebellious attitude. And to some degree, that was correct because it was like, you know, graffiti was illegal. Yeah, hip hop is a rebel art. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So you know, we fighting against the system. You know, but at the same time, it was nothing that grabbed me any stronger. You know, yeah. my mom tried to put me in uh, Boy Scouts, and you know, I was like, eh. You know, it just didn't do anything for me. It was cool, but it didn't. It didn't keep me. Yeah. You know, so you know, she tried to put me in a music school and. And at the time, it wasn't the music that I was learning. Like, you know, you're trying to study the notes and all that. And I wasn't really a person that was trying to become, learn how to read music and play music like the organ and all of that. I wanted to get good, but I didn't want to study because it was just difficult. 
But hip hop, it was like nobody had to tell me this is what you got to do because it was automatic connection. So, you know, but my mom, she definitely I think it was a hardship for her. And a lot of our parents, you know, they were kind of like, you know, you know, you you guys keep getting in trouble. You know, we had our encounters with the law. And I mean, you know, yeah, that's concerning for any parent. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And what did your what did your folks do? Uh, Well, my mom, she uh, at the time when I first got into it, uh, my mom had just kind of started getting spiritually you know, for her personal, her personal development, you know. And so I think that was another thing that kind of was a conflict because she's, she's trying to read the Bible and, 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 and grow spiritually. And I'm, you know, writing on trains and, you know, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And so it was like, you know, but at the same time I was, I was, I was a teenager. So it was just like, okay, what, what am I supposed to do? You know, this is, this has got me, you know, and I'm sorry. I can't, I can't help myself. It's like a drug. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, especially graffiti. I imagine that adrenaline rush. Yeah. is pretty serious. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and now my father, he had cut out of my life a long time ago. So I was raised by my aunts and my, uh, my grandmother, yeah. um, because my mom had to work and stuff like that. But I mean, and then the streets, I mean, you know, hip hop kind of raised a lot of us as well. Yeah. Yeah. So now, and I know there's a whole swath of history that we're missing, but you are collecting a history. Yes. You are working on documenting and telling the story of hip hop in Chicago in a series of books that you're writing. Tell us about what this series is. So to start it off, in 1992, I was a subscriber to the Source magazine, and yeah, I had so many. Right, so it, I had, it was the Bible. They called it the Bible for yeah, a reason. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So you know, um, and they had opened this section in the book the for a one pager where they showed they graffiti, and they was like, you know, send us your stuff and we'll put it in there. So I did just that. Send them some pictures because I had hundreds of pictures. Send them, you know, and, you know, back then we was using 35 millimeters and, you know, we'd have to go get them developed and prints and stuff like that. Right. So I would send them a hard photo and they would never publish any of it. And I kind of felt a certain way. I'm of like, course. wow, you know, every time I look in there, it's all New York stuff, you know, but yet you say, send us your stuff, you'll put it in there. So that's when we, me and my partner named Fear, he was also my mentor, graffiti mentor. We decided, you know what? We just started taking pieces of paper like hey you know we got pictures let's you know we just start laying stuff out cut yeah. and paste a zine yeah. making a zine yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is diy hip-hop entrepreneurial yep. to the core yeah 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 and we had no idea we hadn't we had we had no experience with publishing i didn't even own a computer but we had love for hip-hop and that was the driving force so you know we started laying this stuff all out we took it to kinko's i think we were using office max and kinko's and we made black and white copies Took it to a couple of stores. One of the first stores we took it to was Fort City. Uh, my man, Doug Infinite, had a store, a skate wow. shop called uh, Underground Wheels. Shout out Doug Infinite, who yes. lives in the Bay and is homies with my buddy Adam Mansback. Yes, so yes, salutes. yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, so yeah. Doug was one of the first stores that we put the magazine in, and they start selling. We call, selling called Shot Rock Nation? Yeah, it, well, the magazine, we called it Chicago Rocks. Chicago Rocks, yes. Yes, okay. yes. And at that point, we realized, okay, you know, we got to step the game up because obviously some people are interested in this and, you know, we put them in there and they sold out. So it was like, okay, you know, so it it, be, it it created this whole domino effect where it was like, okay, man, we need some writers. We need some, you know, photographers. We need this. We need that. And, I, and we started going around to different colleges and high schools to recruit people to help us because, again, it was a volunteer basis. But it definitely, you know, we were trying to pattern ourselves after the source, but on a Chicago level. 
<laughs> yeah, man. So this is so you began kind of documenting, reporting about what was happening in Chicago. Mm-hmm. This is around what year? Uh, we launched the magazine in '93. It was supposed to come out in August of 93, but we were a month behind, so it didn't really come out until September of 93. And how long did you guys put out zines? From 93 up until 98. Wow, okay. Yeah. 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 How many issues do you know? Uh, I think it was 22. Amazing, okay. <laughs> um, and that was a good moment because I remember there were other publications as well. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Flypaper. Flypaper, um, yes. A few others that I remember uh, in that We had era. another one called Caught in the Middle. That was a magazine, but they only published two issues, but it was still relatively, you know, a, a local underground magazine. Yeah. And then Chicago Rocks became an event as well? Yes. Uh, uh, at the moment. The moment started doing production events, you know, yes. concerts and stuff like that, and they just named it Chicago Rocks. Okay. In, <laughs> in honor of... Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yep. Okay. And those, those were very dope events. Those, and they seemed to me to carry out a similar mission to Shy yes. Rock Nation yes. in terms of uniting a Chicago hip-hop community. One of the only nights in the year where you would see kind of everyone out. Yeah. You know, and, and I remember those nights very fondly at the Metro and other places, you know, at the Metro primarily. I think. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think a lot of us had it on our minds and hearts that we got to create our own industry, so to speak, Yeah, because we didn't really have it. New York had a lot of the record labels, so did California, but then California also had a lot of the movie companies. Well, we didn't really have neither one of those things here to the, to that extent for yeah. us. And so during the time where we were doing it, so, I mean, you know, because even years prior to that, I mean, we did have uh, record pools and, I mean, you know, we had chess records here, but that stuff was long gone. I mean, the, the original Regal on 47th Street was long gone. So all the great performers had kind of came and, and passed through here. So now it was a new time in, in the era, and it was difficult because we were, some of us wanted to become rappers and get, you know, signed to a label, but we were trying to go to New York, and New York just wasn't trying to, they weren't trying to have us. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. So you, so during the 90s, so you're documenting what's happening. When do you get the idea to turn all of what you've lived through, created into a larger documentary a book project. So the book, actually, the book came before the magazine, the concept. Wow, okay. So, wow, you know, so you've, we, you've been we, sitting on this. Yeah, yeah. So in 92, we we actually came up with the idea to write the book first. But we was like, this is, we, we what we did was we, we were just like, you know, we had been going to parties, me and my partner, Fear, and meetings and all of that. And we were just like, man, that'd be cool if we put together a book. You know, and then we just immediately just started taking paper and making lists of people's names that, we think this should be in the book mm. and it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And we was like, man, this would be a nice, this would be a dope book, you know? And that's when we start interviewing people, you know what I'm saying? We had a little tape recorder, you know, you know, and this is back when we was using all analog stuff. So Amazing. we put the cassette in there and we just go to an event and push record and let them just t- tell us, you know, answer our questions. And then we like, okay, we got that. We got one interview, you know? And, you know, and then we started trying to, you know, con- Encapsulate and compile a lot of this stuff. And when we started looking at it, we was like, wow, this is this this is Chicago hip hop. And but then we realized, wow, this is gonna cost, how are we gonna do this? You know, I called a couple of publishing companies that that I mentioned to you before, and they were like, Oh, you know, we're not interested in publishing anything on hip hop. You know, it was it was kind of foreign at the time and people just was afraid of it, I think. And so we was like, I was like, wow, how are we gonna publish a book if we can't even find a publisher? You know, and so it was just like, okay. And then we knew we were going to need money. So then that's when the concept came up 
well, how about we do the magaz- a magazine as a little stepping stone to work our way up? And at the time, we was generating a little money off of that. And at the same time, we were still doing interviews and kind of still documenting. But it was just on a smaller scale. And we were able to put that out every month or every two months. Oh, that's amazing. So <laughs> this has become your life's work, really? Yes. Right. Um, is there a is there a date? Yeah, because we were talking beforehand. You were talking about self-publishing. Is there? Mm-hmm. Do you have a date in mind when the book comes out, or is it you're just working? Well, and- so I had I was trying to because the book is actually 400 pages. Right. So it's more of a historical reference book. Yes. So uh, and it covers all the elements, uh, all Chicago. Um, you know, and so from going all the way back to the 70s when I could say when we had Soul Train. So uh, so I. And again, my partner, Fear, he moved. So he, he he no longer lives in Chicago. So I began to pick this project back up. I had put it down. I picked it back up in 2016, 2016. And I'm like, OK, I'm going to just try to do this thing by myself, you know, trying to still pick up and do stories and, you know, interviews and edit all of this stuff. And now I have a computer, so a lot easier. But I I was like, this is just too big to put out right now as one so it'll give me more time if I break it into uh, uh, sections, you know, uh, compartments of elements. So that's what I did. And now as I'm still working it in, it's hard to try to catch up with people to get the interviews and all of that. So, you know, it's just giving me a little bit more time. So the first volume, which is the DJ volume, is going to come out this month. So I'm actually coming. I'm doing the final editing right now so that I could submit my uh, my manuscript files to the company that I'm going to use to actually have it done. Dope. And what is the title of the project, and what's the title of that volume? Uh, it's called The Real Deal on the History of Chicago Hip-Hop, and it's volume one. Dope. Um, yo, man, it is... Uh it's it's just a pleasure to talk with you, and um, you know we have years and years to catch up on. Um, yes. Where where if you can give out the socials one more time, where where can people stay in tune with all of what you're doing? Okay, so I'm on Facebook under Daryl M. Roberts Artistic, uh, uh, Shy Rock Nation as well on Facebook, on Instagram Shy Rock Nation. Uh, actually, and I think I m- messed up when I mentioned it earlier, but on my personal Instagram page. It's actually Citra Photos. So Citra is my company because I do graphic designs, and that's actually artistic spell backwards. Ah, okay. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, Daryl, thank you so much, man, for being in the corner store, and I'm so excited uh, to, to build with you and to talk with you and very, very excited that uh, your work will be in the world soon and we can uh, read it, and I'm excited to do so. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Shout out our super producer, DJ Cashera. Big up boss man, Todd Manley. Thank you to our official corner store photog, Mercedes Zapata. Salutes to the snack door, Max. Also, please, y'all, follow our Instagram. It's corner underscore pod on IG, on Twitter. Tell us who you want to see in the corner store. And also, please consider dropping a couple of dollars into our Patreon account. It's patreon.com corner store underscore pod. The corner store is brought to you by Stolen Spirits.